0: I'm away on vacation this week, but please enjoy this very popular episode from last year with Alberto Cairo on data visualization. We'll see you next week. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Alison Hartso of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone! Today's show is about visual data disasters, specifically the many ways we misinterpret visual data. And to help me discuss this topic is Alberto Cairo. Alberto is the fascinating and frequently funny leader of the Visual Trumpery Tour. When he is not writing books or hosting workshops, he's a professor at the University of Miami, specifically the Knight Chair of Visual Journalism. Alberto, welcome! to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Now, when I was getting my journalism degree, I can tell you, visual journalism was not a specialty I had the option to choose. So could you start by telling us a little bit more about your background and how you gravitated to this topic?
1: Sure. It was... It was not an option when I studied journalism in Spain either 20 years ago. I am originally from Spain and I studied journalism there. Um, it, It all happened by happenstance. My original intent when studying journalism was to work in radio. I actually did internships in radio stations, the equivalent of NPR in Spain, reading the news in the morning. Uh, but at, at some point at the end of my, uh, my oh, in the fourth year of my BA, I believe that it was, a professor of mine knew that uh, I can draw a little bit. I'm not a great artist, but I can I can sketch things out. And she knew these about me. And she got a request from a local newspaper in Spain that was looking for a journalism student who could act or work as a reporter, but at the same time, who also could have an eye for design. Mm-hmm. So she recommended me for that position and I was hired as an intern in that newspaper with no experience whatsoever in design I knew I knew nothing about design at the time but then I started working in this in this team in this group and I started educating myself about the the convergence or the overlap that exists between Um, let's say traditional storytelling or journalistic storytelling and also visual storytelling and how the two of them reinforce each other Mm -hmm. and I have been in this field ever since until this until today uh,
0: just not to uh, not to out your age or anything but roughly what decade was that when your boss was asking you to do more visualization work
1: Oh, this was 20 years ago. I, I am 43. I began my career when I was oh, actually 21 years ago. I began my career when I was 22.
0: Ah, good. So from this point, where you started to get much better, uh, you, you self-educated, and you started to understand more about the crossover between journalism and data. How did that lead to your eventual position as the night chair at the University of Miami?
1: Well, that that was again. It's a, it's a very long story, but I will try to make it short. So, uh, when I when I started doing graphics to inform the public, I used to focus mostly on pictorial explanations. We used to call those infographics in the news industry. So, imagine, for example, that there is an accident happening you know in town and you do a visual explanation of how the how the accident happened right you draw the cars and you draw the trucks just to explain how the accident happened we call that an infographic in the news industry i prefer to call it pictorial visualization or pictorial infographics but then when i was like um Ten years in my career, like uh, this happened around 2007, no, actually before that, 2005, 2006, I started getting interested in in graphs and maps and data charts. And I started educating myself a little bit about cartography, learning about statistics and, and analytics, etc. So I started reading a little bit about that and also practicing, teaching myself the tools of the trade. And I gravitated more towards these field. Uh, a little bit later, around 2008, 2009, uh, when I started writing my first book, The Functional Art, and also the second one. The second one mostly I wrote it around 2011, 2012, The Truthful Art, which focuses exclusively on data visualization. And,
0: and I should also call out that there is a website. I believe it's com. Is that right? Yeah, that's my,
1: that's my personal web blog, which is devoted to visual communication in general, I tend to focus a little bit more on data visualization but I sometimes also write about pictorial visualization which is something that I still teach I still teach people how to use for example 3D modeling and animation to uh, to tell stories right uh, but I focus mo- most of my career at the moment most of my teaching on data visualization but I, I teach love. both data visualization and pictorial visualization
0: got it, got it so a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast have a background in marketing and marketing analytics and there's a big push about pretty pictures. Uh, Tell me Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit about why should I care about what is conveyed behind those pretty pictures? You know, maybe shouldn't I just be happy Mm -hmm. that I've created something that's visually pleasing and that, you know, people are starting to talk about it. I'm starting to get uptick on the work that I've done. Should I care that Mm -hmm. there might be visual mischief in that infographic or in that visual presentation?
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So creating a beautiful picture is a worthy goal. I'm not against it. I'm a fan of, you know, nice looking maps and charts and graphs, etc. Although I think that that is just one of the dimensions that uh, need to be considered when we design a data visualization. Uh, In my second book, The Truthful Art, I say that uh, any great graphic is made of at least five different elements or it, it should pursue five or six different goals. Uh, and the first one is one of them is that it needs to be beautiful, right? So a good graphic is always a beautiful object that you can look at and and enjoy, right? That's a, one of the components, one of the elements of a great graphic. But the first one in the list of a uh, things that we should pursue is that any graphic should be truthful. And by meaning by by the meaning of truthful in there is that the graphic should reflect our best understanding of what the truths that hide behind the data are. It should be the best representation of those stories that sometimes hide behind numbers. And it's a primary goal. So a beautiful graphic that is not truthful will never be a good graphic. In order for a graphic to be good, first of all, it needs to be truthful. It needs to be honest. It needs to be deep enough to, to, to show us the realities that hide behind those numbers.
0: And what are the other elements in those five?
1: Oh, I I talk about many of them. So I, I say that a graphic needs to be truthful. The second is that it needs to be beautiful to attract people's attention. I also say that it needs to be functional in the sense that the way that we shape the data Uh, needs to depend on the messages that we want to communicate. And I devote a lot of pages in the book to explain, for example, how to decide whether you need to use a bar graph or a line chart or a data map, etc. So each one of those uh, ways of representing data is very suited for a particular goal. Uh, So sometimes, for example, when you have the example that I put in, one example that I put in the book and I also explain to my students is that most beginners uh, when, when, when they start doing a, an infographic uh, data visualization and they are working with a data set that has a geographical component, let's say that it's, for example, you know, a state-level unemployment rate, they rush to the computer and they design a map immediately just because the data set has a geographic component. And what I recommend people is, like, wait a second, stop for a second. Think about the nature of the data and more importantly, think about what it is that you want to communicate Right. Because if the purpose of the of the chart of the of the visualization that you are doing is to show geographic patterns in the data, more unemployment here, less unemployment over there, then the map is the right solution. But if the purpose of the graphic is not to show the geographic patterns of the data, if the purpose of your graphic is to let people rank and compare. The states in the united states according to unemployment rate then the map is not functional for that purpose you need to do some sort of bar chart for example to compare the different the different unemployment rates so that's what I mean by functional. It's like the the shape of the object. It's like the fo- form follows function, right? The rule in graphic design, o- although it's a much more complicated than that. And I spend a lot of a lot of space in the books explaining these. It all boils down to that. It's like the 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 the, the form of a graphic should somehow be constrained or be guided by the purposes of, by the function that that graphic has. Then I also say that a graphic, a good visualization needs to be insightful, meaning that it needs to provide interesting insights from the data. It needs to reveal... Uh, patterns and trends that are relevant and then that may go unnoticed if you don't visualize them and as a result of all these a great visualization can be enlightening it may be it may change your mind about a particular topic right you didn't know something about about, about this data set then you visualize it and you learn something about the data and in that sense the data or the visualization of the data is enlightening you so those are the mm-hmm. five elements
0: now i actually had four elements as you were talking did i miss one I got uh, truthful.
1: It's truthful. I may I, I may need to consult you, <laughs> but I believe that it was is, is, uh, truthful, beautiful, functional. functional, insightful, and enlightening. enlightening. So those are the five, those are the five requirements for a great oh, association. I love it. I I love it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit more about what is the problem now? You know, why the need for the visual Trumpery tour? And, and I got to ask you, mm. you know, the, the name Trumpery, There, it seems like there's a, a political <laughs> angle in that. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the tour that you have going on?
1: Sure, sure. What I explained at the beginning of the the Visual Trumpery talk um, is that the title of the talk is a provocation because a better title for the talk would be How Charts Lie or How Visualizations Lie or How Visualizations Mislead Us, right? Um, The thing is that um, if I title a talk How Charts Lie, that is not as attractive or as eye-catching as Visual Trumpery. Now, visual Trumpery. The title comes uh, from from a, a moment of revelation that I had after the two thousand and sixteen presidential election, when I was on Twitter following the results of the of the November election, and a, a person who I follow in social media, uh, social media tweeted the meaning of the word trumpery, because trumpery is an actual word in the English language, it's, a, it's an old old word that comes from French, and a trumpery is something that lies, something that deceives <laughs> the eye. So I thought, this is perfect, because it will help me attract more, bigger audiences, and I, it will help me also mislead them a little bit, and make my first point in the talk, which is a chart, or by extension any piece of information will always mislead you if you don't pay attention to it and if you don't read beyond the headline if you read the headline alone visual trumpery you may think well this is a highly partisan talk Mm -hmm. right but then you you access the content you see the actual content of the talk and you will notice that the talk is as i said in the talk itself it's very political but it is not Mm -hmm. partisan so I believe that the, that using charts well is a political issue in the sense that charts can inform public discourse or public conversations if they are well designed. But the talk is not partisan in the sense that I have examples both from the right and from well, the let's, left.
0: Let's talk about some of those examples. And I, I just I love the name of that tour. That's fantastic. And I I, I think I know a fair amount of um, unique words, but that was one I had not been familiar with. So thank you for adding to my lexicon there. So let's talk about that political uh, angle the political party side around visual trumpery and you know obviously there's such a an interesting angle that could be played from both sides what is it that the political parties are doing that is causing us to be you know perhaps misled or using the data incorrectly
1: well it's not just political parties it's 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 partisan people on both sides of the political spectrum, right? So uh, both in the talk and in the book that I'm writing around the talk, I explain that these, uh, the misuse of charts is not related uh, to uh, your being on, on, on either end of the political mm-hmm. spectrum. It's more related to the fact that you are partisan and that we all like to see what we want to see we all like to have our opinions confirmed right and corroborated so right. right when we see a ch- yeah when we see a chart that apparently uh, confirms or corroborates what we already believe we feel really happy right and when we see a chart that refutes what we believe we tend mm-hmm. to reject it rather than reading it carefully, right? So I have examples from partisans from both the left and the right, and up and down, from all over the political spectrum because this is a universal problem. Uh, Beginning on the left, for example, I have an example coming from liberal pundits who a while ago were trying to defend Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, using a chart of the job market, number of jobs created by private companies. right? If you plot the number of jobs uh, in the private market between 2006 and 2000, I don't remember the details, but imagine that it's between 2006 and 2017, the shape of that curve will be, will have the shape of a U, right? It has a, a U shape, meaning that jobs started, the creation of jobs started shrinking or, or, or dropping uh, during the economic crisis. And then there is an inflection point, and then the the job market recovered. The number of jobs started increasing again, right? Well, what these pundits were doing, though, is that on top of that chart, showing the number of jobs created by private companies, they overlaid a point in time saying, well, this is the point in time when Obamacare was approved, when Obamacare was passed, the Affordable Care Act. And the passing of the Affordable Care Act Happens to coincide very closely to the uh, with the inflection point in the curve when the curve is start is start is starts going up again the number of jobs right so what these people were implying is that the Affordable Care Act is great for the job market contrary to what Republicans say Republicans like to say that the Afo- uh, Affordable Care Act is terrible for the job market because it's hindering companies' ability to hire people and so on and so forth because it's so expensive to pay for health care mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, in, contrary to that, these pundits will say, well, that is not true. Take a look at what happens. The job market is recovering and take a look at what happened on the inflection point. The Affordable Care Act was mm-hmm. passed. Well, I don't have a strong opinion about this. I'm not an economist and I don't have an opinion as to whether Obamacare is good or bad for the, for the job market. But what I point out in the talk is that that is completely besides the point. What you believe about Obamacare, whether you think that is good or bad, The chart itself doesn't tell you anything about that because a chart This is a, a principle of good chart reading or good chart making. A chart only shows what it shows and nothing else. And all that that chart is showing is that there is a coincidence in time between two different events. The inflection point in the job market curve and the passing of Obamacare. But that doesn't mean that Obamacare is what caused the inflection in the job market curve. They could be completely unrelated, or there could be many other factors that also contributed to the recovery of the economy. The chart is not revealing them, right? So the chart doesn't prove anything. It's completely, I, I think that it's, that particular chart was completely useless to either attack mm-hmm. or to defend Obamacare. The chart on its you know, own. We often talk I mean,
0: about that in analytics, uh, you know, correlation is not causation,
1: that's the yeah. That's the common mantra in statistics, right? right? Although it, it needs to have an extension, it needs to have a caveat, which is that correlation or coincidence, temporal coincidence, are usually the first clue to later finding causation. That's also very important to remember. It's not that all correlations are meaningless. Correlation is a very important, or relationships, because correlation has a very specific meaning in the statistics. Relationship between variables is usually the first clue that you need to pay attention at. Right, but the chart alone—that's the key thing. The chart alone is often not enough to establish a causal relationship between variables. You need more. Right? more just out information of curiosity
0: what percentage of the charts that you see that are displaying information but not necessarily matching the story that someone is telling about them what percentage of them uh, are in this camp of um, correlation not causation
1: <laughs> it's difficult to tell I, I don't know what percentage it could be but uh, it's, it it's 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 Quite a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it's very common. It's very common to see. And it's not just a problem with correlations. It's a problem with, and again, this is another good principle of good chart making and good chart reading. Don't read too much into a chart. That's mm-hmm. another thing right in relationship to a chart only shows what it shows and nothing else don't read too much too much into the into a single chart try to think beyond the chart a chart is a visualization can be an extremely powerful means for communication but only if you control yourself or you curve your own instincts to try to see too much into it or read too much into it and we all do this right we again the chart itself, there was nothing wrong with it. There is a coincidence in time between the Affordable Care Act and the inflection mm-hmm. point. That could be that perhaps it could be perhaps that Obamacare is actually not that bad for the job market. It's a possible clue to that. But again, the chart alone doesn't prove that. You need more information, you All need right. more data in order to establish synchronization. That's what I try to what I try to explain. But we need to jump to, we, we we tend to jump yeah, to conclusions. Yeah. That's the particularly if those conclusions confirm what we want to do. Now, read. is there
0: an example uh, from the right? We've already taken the left to task. I imagine there's one on the other yeah, side. Yeah, well, there
1: are many. Yeah, yeah there are so many. Um, the most, uh, perhaps the most newsworthy or most current one is the way that uh, partisan Republicans, particularly those who support President, President Trump very strongly, tend to misread the county level election results map, right? Just picture in your, in, in your brain the results of the 2016 presidential election at the county level. Right? You will imagine a map that is uh, mostly covered in red with just a few spots of blue uh, in, in urban areas and in coastal areas, like an ocean of red. And with with few with a few islands of blue here and there, right? Well, there is nothing wrong with that map per se. The map is correctly designed. It's just displaying the vote at the county level, right? Red and blue, Republi- uh, 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 Republican and Democrat. There's nothing wrong with that map, but the inferences that people make from that map are completely wrong, right? It's like uh, because the map, uh, what what some people, particularly, again, on the Republican side, tend to see on that map, is a victory by a landslide. They are using the map to infer popular vote, right? The number of people who voted for either President Trump or Hillary Clinton. And they say, take a look at how much red there is on this map and how little blue there is on this map. Actually, if, we could, if you can calculate, which is something that I did, the percent of red area on that map, on the county level map, and the percent of blue area on that map, it's 80% red and 20% blue. But that is not what happened <laughs> in the popular vote, right? The popular vote was a split of forty-six point something percent for Trump and forty-eight percent for Hillary Clinton. Trump, Trump lost the the uh, the popular vote. So you cannot infer that support for President Trump is huge, are uh, based on that map. But that is what the map implies. If if that is what you want to believe. That President Trump has a huge support, and that is not—that is not true. Sorry, I think the proper
0: pronunciation there is huge, right? (laughs)
1: Huge, yeah, yeah, huge, huge, huge support, right? Again, and and the point that I make during the talk, I try to you know wrap up all these examples with a little bit of humor, and I always precede them with the with a similar sentence saying, um, "What I'm saying right now is a completely besides of what you think about." Uh, politics at the moment. So, uh, objectively speaking, this map is misleading you for such and such reason. Regardless of whether you oppose Trump or you support Trump, it it misleads us anyway, and we need to be careful with
0: that. Let's talk about another example. I saw this one on your talk at Berkeley, and you went through the hurricane chart and the cone of uncertainty. Will you take us through this one? Because oh, yeah. this is one we see all the time, and you know, yeah. it, for those of us in the space, I. I never even thought to question it, but take us through why this one is misleading.
1: Oh, wow! All right, okay, so let's get let's get started because ex- explaining visuals in a podcast is always <laughs> difficult. All right, so. And, and, but in that particular example, it's, it's quite complicated, but also fascinating. I, I in, in the book that I'm writing, I devote like like six or seven pages to it. But I'm going to try to and be concise. So first of all, picture. You. Oh, you're oh, all right. Perfect. You, and I have an article online that we Excellent. can link to where people can read about it. All right. So anyway, so picture how hurricane forecasts are usually uh, displayed in the media, right? So when, when, when the media or the National Hurricane Center, which is the, the, the center that produces all these maps, uh, when they want to inform you of where a hurricane or a tropical storm could go, they usually create a map in which you can see the geographic area that may be affected by the hurricane, and then they show you the path of the hurricane surrounded by a cone of increasing size, mm-hmm. Right. We call that the cone of uncertainty. Now, the right way to read that map is to imagine that that area contained in the cone is made of, let's say, dozens or hundreds of possible paths of the storm. Basically, what scientists are trying to tell you is that this line here in the middle of the cone is what we estimate that is the most probable path of the storm, but This storm could be a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left within the boundaries of this cone. All right. So that's how to read. uh, By the way, the path of the center of the storm. That's a very important, very important thing to remember. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's not how many people read that map. When, and this has been proven experimentally, all right people have been shown this map and asked, what do you see in this map? When many people see the cone of uncertainty, what they see is an area of impact right? they imagine that the cone is showing the possible areas that may be affected by the mm-hmm. storm right That's the reason why some people down here in Florida call the cone of uncertainty the cone <laughs> of death if you are inside, if you are inside the cone you are under threat. If you're outside the cone, you are fine. But that is not how to read it, obviously, because again, the cone of uncertainty is just basically a range of possible paths of the center of the storm. And the center of the storm is just Mm -hmm. a point, right? A storm is a huge object. So try to imagine, for example, that at the end, the storm passes by the, the right edge of the of the cone of uncertainty it could affect it could still affect an area very far away from the uh, from the mm-hmm. cone itself just because the the storm is a huge object but it gets even worse it gets even worse when you get to the nitty-gritty of how they how that cone of uncertainty is created so the first time that I saw it I saw the map I saw the cone etc I asked myself does the cone contain all Forecasts all probable or possible paths mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. storm, right? And that was not my assumption, right? Remember, remember, I remember stats 101, yeah. right? You I think remember, it's like ninety five percent
0: confidence, like, right?
1: Exactly. That's what most people believe, right? That's what if you know a little bit about stats, that would be your mm-hmm. inference, right? And it's completely <laughs> wrong. You may you may think that. You know, the cone contains 95% of possible paths, but in some strange cases, in some, you know, outlier cases, it could be 5% of the cases, the stone could be outside the boundaries of the cone of uncertainty, the actual path of the stone will be outside. But that is not true. When you read the, the the footnotes of the map or you go to the documentation of how the map is created, the cone contains only two out of three possible paths Ooh. of the storm. That means that one out of three of the time, the actual path of the storm, the, tra- the track of the storm, could be, will be outside the boundaries of the cone of uncertainty, right? So... Is the map bad? No, it is not bad. It is only bad if you don't know how to read it. And that's why it, it's so relevant and so important that people in my profession, journalists, we learn to read charts better. Because if we don't read the charts well, mm-hmm. right, we will not be able to inform the public about how to read them well. I have never seen in a news media TV cast, for example, in a Newscast, explain, someone explain the cone of uncertainty mm-hmm. correctly. It may happen, but I have not seen it. So, and we need to explain it better. Just because, again, you could be affected by the storm, even if you are outside the uh, the cone of uncertainty the probability of that happening is really exactly
0: high. and I, I think it's very interesting where you put the responsibility you don't put the responsibility on the receiver but you put it on the communicator uh, on the journalist.
1: i put it on both so so i put it on both um it's that's a ver, also another very relevant point well the main responsibility is obviously on the communicator the communicator needs to make an effort in explaining things as clearly as possible right that's the primary responsibility but and this is a very important but there is also a responsibility on the part of the readers right we live in a time in which we don't pay attention we just browse through browse through through things very quickly we don't pay attention to them we take a look at a chart and we believe we understand it and we oh i understand i understand this chart right I, i i don't need to take a look at it carefully because i have already understood it i can move away to take a look at the next next piece of content so there's also a responsibility on the part of the audience to educate ourselves to be more attentive to be more careful again remember what i said about the title of my talk if you only read the title you will be misled. You need to read beyond the title. You need to read the footnotes, you need to read the fine print in order to understand what it is that the chart is showing or that the, or what the talk is about, right? So we have a responsibility uh, as people, as readers, as mm-hmm. citizens, to be more attentive and to be more responsible Uh, with the way that we absorb, absorb information and we handle the information that we absorb. I'm going to
0: push back on that for just a minute because I think there's a natural human intent to see what you want to see. How do you know that you're just not seeing what you want to see versus thinking critically?
1: Well, you can put yourself in the position of thinking in in terms of counterfactuals. All right. So I can tell you about that. Let's go back to the example um, about the Affordable Care Act. Right. Right. I am part of the audience who may be misled by that chart into thinking that Obamacare is great for the job market. Because I happen to be from Europe, from Western Europe, I'm from Spain. We have so to speak, socialized medicine, which is a very funny term here in the United States, socialized medicine in Spain, right? Pay through taxes, and it works wonderfully. It works really, really well. Healthcare, public healthcare, universal public healthcare in Spain is fantastic. So I, and and I tend to believe that that could be a great model for the United States, right? Why don't we have universal healthcare here in the United States? I'm open to debate, but what I'm trying to say is that I can be someone who will be misled by that chart, but I was not misled by that chart. Why? Because I I thought about it carefully. I didn't just take a look at it, uh, imagining that it's just an illustration. Take a quick look at it and say, okay, it's great. Obamacare is great for the job market. And I moved away from it. I paid attention to the chart. I thought about the chart. I started thinking about alternative explanations for the inflection point, right? For example, um a, the recovery act, right? in which happened before the inflection point, right, the Obama presidency injected billions of dollars in the private market, that could be one possible explanation for the job market picking up at that particular time, even more so than Obamacare. So there are ways in which you can curb I believe, your own ideological predispositions or biases. Mm -hmm. It can be done. You cannot do it 100% of the time, obviously, but if you only do it, say, 50 or 60 or 60 or 70% of the time, that's progress. That's progress. And there is another way. There is another way in which you can do this also in the long term, which is to create, and that's another recommendation that I make over and over and over and over again, create a varied media diet. So, um, try to trying to identify media sources uh, all over the ideological spectrum um, that look trustworthy and that you can consult and and that you read, assuming that the people writing that content are not trying to lie mm-hmm. to you, right? And that's how some, that that's something that I have been doing throughout the years. I have I have curated. A list of media sources that i can consult and that i consider trustworthy both on the right and on the left and i expose myself mm-hmm. actively to opinions that are very different to mine it's hard to do i might not say that it's easy to do because again we all love to have our own opinions confirmed but when we read an argument against our own opinions we need to read it carefully obviously given that that argument is well constructed and it's is honest it harder
0: to have that variety in an age where Uh, There are so many recommendation engines driving the next article that we see.
1: It is harder in the sense, and again, this all comes back to the responsibility on the part of readers, it is harder in the sense that uh, we have become our own curators of information meaning that we are now responsible to create our own media diet we cannot just rely on you know forces above us to curate information for us so we need to actively identify throughout time sources that are reliable that don't lie actively and use them for information in the future and only consult those sources so i my own um, my own bias when I read uh, news in social media is that if that a particular piece of information comes from a source that I don't know and that I have not vetted myself, all right, uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain period of time, immediately I don't trust that piece of information. I will look mm-hmm. more, I will look deeper mm-hmm. into it. Before before sharing it in social media, before tweeting about it, I will take a look a very very close look at what now the I, source is and what the information. I, I is
0: personally use a rule of triangulation. If I can find three different sources saying basically the same thing, then I I start to trust that piece of information. Do you have a rule of thumb like that? But
1: you need to be yeah. That could be part of the process of vetting your sources, but it can also be dangerous. Because sources tend to link to each other. So, again, at least one of those, one or two of the uh, of the corners of that triangle should be sources that you already trust, that have proven to you that they don't lie actively, right? So it cannot be just any source. Those three sources cannot be any source. One or two of them need to be sources that can be trustworthy, according to your own assessment. And, again, it's hard work because you need to follow sources Uh, throughout a particular period of time to see what they publish, what their orientation is, whether they publish good content or bad content, biased content or non-biased content. So it's hard work. So yeah, we we need to do hard work, I believe, as as readers, as consumers of information.
0: When you're trying to decide what's a valid source, how important are the retractions?
1: Extremely important. Actually, that's one of the things that that I use as, um, as as a sign for quality. So if a, if a news organization never publishes corrections visibly, I just erase it from my <laughs> list. I only have I only include sources that public that that publish uh, corrections mm-hmm. um, when the, when they screw up. We all screw up. There is a difference between lying and screwing up. Everybody yeah. screws up. That's a very important. Um, but not everybody lies in news media, right? So, and that the key difference you can identify a, when you focus, when you pay attention at yeah,
0: correction. Yeah, well, these are these are great tips. Are there other tips that people should keep in mind when they're looking at these visualizations? And you know, we've talked a lot about thinking critically. We've talked about reliable sources. Um, what else should they be? You know, if they're if they're convinced they really want to think more carefully about data and the visuals that they look at, is there a hit list or a checklist or something that they could go through.
1: Yeah, um, and there are several things that we need to pay attention to, or uh, the tips that I give during the talk. So, for an instance, take obviously take a look at the source of the of the data. If you have time, take a look at the primary source of the data. So, if the chart, for example, is displaying the results of a poll or the results of a scientific study. You know, devote one minute or a couple of minutes to go to the primary source and see what the what the data is and whether the chart published in that particular source reflects the primary source well. So that will be the first thing. If you have the time, obviously, we don't always have the time to do that. But if we do, it can take us a long way. In identifying uh, faulty visualizations, second thing that we can pay attention to is as to whether the ch- the graphic is um, well designed or not, meaning whether the scales on a chart have been uh, have been distorted, or uh, things like that, or the colors of the map have been distorted to convey a particular message, etc. Talk extensively about these. Um, uh, another thing there is uh, to ask ourselves whether the chart contains a sufficient amount of information in order to uh, support the message that the chart is intended to convey right? And and this is a very, very common problem. And it's related to the principle that I explained before about when I said that a chart shows only what it shows and nothing else, right? So is the chart providing enough data to support the claims for example, that the title of the talk the, of, the, of the chart is making, right? So we need to pay attention because many charts are extremely simplified, are oversimplified, and sometimes they, they need to include more information. Are you
0: also recommending in that, um, that you not look at the title first, that you look at the chart first and then the title? You know what? I mean,
1: I I don't mind. That could be one possible approach, but if you take a look at the title first, then you need to keep the title in mind and put it in in in, in comparison, compare it to the actual content of the chart itself because the title can bias your perception mm-hmm. of the chart. So it's like Read the title by all means, that's what I do, but then put it aside for just one second and just focus on the messages that the chart is conveying. And then compare those messages to the title to see whether the title has any merit or not, right? So that could be a possible a possible strategy. Um, uh, don't read too much, another principle or another thing. So again, don't read too much into a chart, that could be another good principle of chart, of chart reading. Uh, and try to put your, as much as you can, again, it's not 100% possible, but try to put your own cultural and ideological biases aside when you when you read a chart or when you assess a chart. Try to assess the chart based on its own merits, not on what you want to see on the chart. Again, this is hard work. It sounds easy when you say it. It's hard, but it mm-hmm, can be done. Mm-hmm.
0: But it, I think the first step, like most biases, is being aware that it's that you might have a bias.
1: Yeah, that's perhaps the hardest part, right? Acknowledging that we all come from somewhere, right? We all have values and we all have, and we need to assume that other people's values also have merit and also have reasons Mm -hmm, to exist, mm -hmm. right? If we want to have an informed conversation. Well, and I think That's
0: especially hard in this industry when we're trying to create data driven cultures and we're trying to give people uh, actionable insights. You know, there's pressure to show that there's something you can do with the data. And so I think it's very easy to leap into um, the fact that something is. Uh, perhaps more important than it is. But uh, testing, which is something we also talk about on this show, can be a really great avenue to say this is an assumption. Now let's test it and see if it's
1: true. Yeah, testing is really important. But I believe that there's something else that is also important, which is to assume or perhaps accept that charts are not conversation stoppers meaning a chart will not close a conversation. We need to change our mind. We need to change the, the, our frame of mind, the way that we approach charts. Charts are not a way to end conversations. Charts are means to push conversation forwards, forward, to, to facilitate conversations. Charts alone are rarely arguments on their own. When they are presented in isolations, but charts can be extremely powerful elements in conversations or assets in arguments about a particular topic. Right? Uh, again, we tend to believe that a chart represents truth, that a chart is subjective, that a chart that the data on the chart is is scientific, and and that is I mean that's not a bad thing to to think, right? But at the same time, we also need to remember that charts are limited. They are limited models of reality, and therefore they cannot capture reality itself in all its complexity. They need to be put in context. They need to be put again inside longer arguments about the topics that we need to discuss. That's a
0: fantastic point. I love that. Thank you. So now you've got the tour coming up. Can you talk a little bit about how would people get in touch with you or how they might find your books or how they might catch your tour?
1: Uh, sure i mean the the best way to to find me is um uh, through my own uh, weblog which is the title of my first book.com so it's like uh the functional functional the functional art.com that's my weblog also on twitter I'm pretty active on twitter and I tweet mostly about about visualization uh, it's my first name and last name so it's al- at alberto Cairo. The, the website of the, of the visual trumpery talk uh, it has not been um, updated for a while so I need to, to work on that in the next few months. but uh, it's a trumperytour.com and I usually post all the dates and places of uh, future talks uh, Do uh, you in have there. Um, yeah. Yes, I'm going to Nashville for example in in September. Uh, or October, I don't remember. I need okay. to check that out. Um, I'm going to North Carolina in September. So I am visiting a Raleigh, Chapel Hill, a, a Durham, and then Charlotte. So four different cities in North Carolina in September. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, several Fantastic. cities. Yeah.
0: Now, if somebody can't get to one of those talks, is there a particular talk you're very fond of that we could link to in our show notes?
1: Sure. There is a, I gave a version the Trumpery talk has different versions. And I believe that one of the best ones is the one that I delivered in New Zealand um, during the IHAKA uh, celebration. So IHAKA is I-H-A-K-A, IHAKA. So the IHAKA lectures is a series of lectures honoring a Ross IHAKA, who is one of the creators of the R programming language. He was a professor. He was a professor in New Zealand, in Auckland, in the Department of Statistics at the University of Auckland. He retired. He's still around. And they created this series of lectures. And they invited me to deliver the Visual Trumpery talk during the HACA lectures. And it's available on YouTube. That's one of my favorite versions of the Trumpery talk. But it changes. Every every time that I deliver it, I update the examples. I change it a little bit. The, the structure of the talk doesn't change that much. But the examples that I showcase uh, those
0: high changes. Yes. um I have to say that if you if you have the chance to catch Alberto Cairo on one of these talks, definitely go and see him. I I caught one of them online before we spoke on this podcast, and you are just so entertaining. It is so delightful to hear this topic, which can be fairly dry, delivered in such a mm-hmm. um, a funny, entertaining way. So I. I I, I think yep. that's fantastic. Thank you for taking up the cause. Thank you. Thank you for the kind of words. <laughs> Good. Well, let's <laughs> let's summarize a little bit about what we've heard. Uh, we talked about why should I care about visual trumpery? You know, this this visual mischief and and deception that's going on, and and we came to the conclusion that there were five great elements that happen in most powerful charts or most powerful graphics. From them being truthful beautiful, functional, insightful, and enlightening. Those are the five key components that we're really after. But, you know, we can marry that with what you said at the end, Alberto, which is the chart isn't just meant to be a stopping point. And I think that's where the last piece enlightening becomes so valuable is, if it is indeed enlightening, shouldn't it provoke a conversation? Shouldn't it cause people to say, oh, I didn't know that. What about this? And, And indeed, that's what we oftentimes like to hear when people are engaging with our work is they find six different ways that they want to twist it and turn it to explore it and understand it Uh, it can be a powerful way to to get hold of the data and the story behind the data.
1: That's a fantastic summary. You should deliver the talk in the future. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, I don't think I could do it justice. Not like you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, and then we talked about the different examples. We talked about uh, the left and the right versions, and the uh, the editorial, uh, sorry, the electoral map. Uh, the Obamacare on the left, and the electoral map on the right. And what you said here that was really good was it. And and I've heard this before from other people that we've interviewed, which is to think critically, to think beyond what the data is telling you, to think beyond the chart. And and especially mm-hmm. here, we talked a lot about pausing set your biases aside Mm -hmm. and really think that the chart is just the chart it's only showing you what it has it's not uh it's not Mm -hmm. designed to tell you all the answers at once unless it's extremely well designed Uh, and
1: there's another i'm going to interrupt you in there but because there's another element to that which i forgot to mention but but i make this point in the talk and also in the in my in my third book the one that i'm writing which is that when we think alone we, no, we don't reason. We are mm-hmm. rationalize. That's a very, another very relevant point. So when we only talk to ourselves or to people who are like-minded, people who already think like us, we tend to basically use our reasoning skills to confirm what we already believe. It is better, and again, this is connected to the idea of charts as part of, as part of a dialogue, Enabling process, right? So don't you don't don't reason about the chart on your own. Talk with other people who are not necessarily like-minded about the chart, because every every person will see some something, something different in the chart. And understanding and good reasoning may arise through the conversation about the data that is being shown to you and to that other person. We don't think well alone. We are social creatures, and we only can reason well when we don't think on our own or in collaboration with people who already believe what we believe. We reason better when we partner up with people who are not necessarily like us but who are a little bit different than we are. I love
0: that. That that is going to be our closing note today. (laughs) Don't don't reason on your own. (laughs) Definitely look for those opposing opinions to come to a proper unbiased conclusion. Alberto, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Links to everything we discussed are at AmbitionData.com slash podcast, and that will include links to the different visuals that we talked about today and links to the video that Alberto uh, mentioned at the end of our talk. Now, remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short, bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email The Signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy The Signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.